Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Clayton Whitfield, founder and chief customer officer at SaaS Optics. Today, we'll be covering four key topics with Clayton. Number one, how have SaaS metrics evolved over the last 10 to 12 years? How will they evolve in the future? The top decision-making metrics for customer acquisition, expansion, and retention and the difference between B2B SaaS metrics as leading versus lagging indicators. Clayton, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Hey, Ray. Thanks. It's a pleasure to join you today. Yeah, start, we started SaaS Optics back in 2009. So, you know, as much as, as we'll get into a little bit later today, I'm sure much as the market has evolved, you know, the metrics have evolved as well. And it's something we've done from the very beginning, from the very first iteration of our software. Metrics has been a key part of that. So I guess that's kind of what's led me here today is we've seen a lot evolve over the last few years, and we see it all the time with prospects and customers. So we have a fairly well-rounded view of the B2B SaaS world and the metrics that show up there. Well, let's dive right into that because that's what our listening audience loves. So we have all these metrics and I don't really believe they've evolved that much over the last 10 years. The rule of 40, gross dollar retention, CAC ratio, magic number, CAC payback period, gross margin, customer lifetime value to CAC ratio. So my first question to you is, have you seen B2B SaaS metrics evolve much over the last 10 to 12 years since you founded SaaS Optics? So you raise a great point. I don't think the metrics have evolved very much. What has evolved is the markets from my, and you're, you're getting my bias here because we see this a lot. What has evolved is the market's level of comfort with it or level of understanding of those various metrics. So you're right, you know, the metrics themselves, the ones that, that are named that like you just called out may not have really changed too much, but what has changed in my observation is people's level of comfort with it and their understanding of how they might be used. When we first started SaaS Optics, it was very, very rare to run into people that, that had their hands around three or any more than maybe a couple of metrics, a couple of the ones that you mentioned. They might've even been aware of some of those at the time, but they, they weren't very well educated on them at, at the time. So I'd say that's the biggest evolution is the market's level of comfort. And as, you know, as you've probably discussed in the past, Ray, there's no governing body for SaaS metrics, right? Unlike accounting, where those rules are pretty clear and they're pretty well published, there's no real governing body for metrics. So the market has had to kind of sort of agree on what it is over the years. So the fact that the market's a little bit more educated on those things now has sort of shown some progress in that area. Wow. You just fed a bone to a dog with that comment, Clayton. That is... <laughs> You said you think the understanding of these SaaS metrics has evolved over the last 10 to 12 years. And what I've found is, you know, in 2009, we had less than 5,000 B2B SaaS companies on a global basis. Today, depending on what numbers you look at, we have 40, maybe 50,000 B2B SaaS companies around the world. And so many of those are from first-time SaaS founders. And what mm -hmm. I found is, a lot of people still don't really understand the key metrics or even people who do understand the mathematical calculation, 
there's many different interpretations of how you do things. Are you not seeing that out there in the marketplace? No, that is true. You're absolutely right. You raised a great point here. I should say the understanding of the metrics seems to have evolved over time. That doesn't mean people use them well, right? You can go to Home Depot and buy a hammer, but it doesn't mean you're qualified to swing it. So that doesn't mean that everybody does a, does a very good job of using them or that they understand that they really understand the operational insight that can be derived from good deployment of their metrics. That tends to take experience. So to your point about first-time founders, that is very much something we see there. They maybe have seized on something they read recently or, or heard from someone recently, especially if they've recently raised funds and have investors pushing them one way or the other. They may have something they're kind of focused on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're sort of grasping it completely or getting their, their arms around how to use it very well. Yeah, so we definitely do see that. Just because the market has evolved doesn't necessarily mean that the metrics are getting sort of properly utilized. Hey, great. I love that hammer and Home Depot orientation. You can tell you're from Atlanta. But <laughs> one of the things I say about metrics is right, it's almost like if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. right. Just looking at one metric or two, like even rule of 40, which measures company growth rate plus EBITDA or free cash flow, if you're a little more sophisticated, mm -hmm. that metric in isolation means nothing if you don't also understand your customer acquisition cost efficiency or your retention efficiency. So one of the questions I wanted to follow up with you on was, have you seen the use of SaaS metrics evolve over the last few years? And specifically, how have you seen them evolve? Unfortunately, I would say, no, that's still a bit lacking. Generally speaking, we're talking to people that most of our customers are fairly early stage. So when they come to us, they're often very new. So metrics are a little bit new to them. So there's a little bit of sort of selection bias going on here. So you saw them, yes, we see it, but often when people come to us, another thing, because of what we do, we, I should have pointed out that in our software, we do billing and revenue recognition and account. So sort of gap accounting and metrics, billing and revenue recognition, revenue management. So when people come to us, one of the things that we see is they usually get a big pile of data in a spreadsheet somewhere that is sort of making it hard for them to use the metrics, even if they really understood what they were doing. So part of it is the delivery system and part of it is the lack of knowledge. So one of the things that I would say that I've seen be a little bit better, but has got a long, long way to go is segmentation, especially in the B2B SaaS world. Segmentation of your sort of underlying customer base. There's almost always some way to segment a B2B customer base because in B2B, no two customers are exactly like usually, right? Your biggest customer and your smallest customer may have bought exactly the same product from you, but because you've got sales negotiations in your contracts, they may be paying very different prices and so on, which means that they also likely, you know, upgrade or downgrade or flat out churn for very different reasons from one another. So one of the things that I'd say we have a long way to go on is sort of good segmentation of your customer base, especially in the B2B world. Yeah, let's double click down on that because not only are you the founder of one of the best kind of SaaS metrics billing and revenue recognition software out there, you're also the chief customer officer. So one of the things we tell our clients all the time is that cohort analysis is so critical. Let's say you're looking at customer retention rates and we prefer gross dollar retention. Or if you're looking as a sales and marketing executive, what's my customer acquisition efficiency? To look at that by cohort, whether that's your enterprise target market or your commercial market, it might even be geographic regions around the world. So as a chief customer officer, how do you do and use cohort-based analysis of your key metrics, Clayton? 
So it's a bit it's a bit of a cheat because one of the things we do really well inside our software is cohort reporting. So we have forgotten of number. It's over 150 different cohort attributes that you can chop the data up by, in addition to slicing it by time as well. So it's a bit more than most people are capable of doing in, in spreadsheets. So just to kind of try and point that out for everybody that might be listening is the stuff I'm about to jump into is not necessarily easy to accomplish in a spreadsheet. So one of the things that I like to do is slice things up, like, you know, sort of momentum category, ARR performance over time and by momentum category or by industry is a big one I like to see. Because you're almost always, if you have verticals, the different verticals, you know, you have some that sort of perform better than others for different reasons. But one of the ways I like to chop them up is by industry. Let's keep stick with that example. And then potentially by time, by relative quarter. So I'm making this up. So the financial services industry, this is a completely stylized example. It's not what I'm saying about SaaS optics, to be clear. Let's just use the example of maybe we sell to the financial services industry. And you know that tends to perform really well for Q1, 2, and 3. But for some reason, by Q5, by the time they're in their fifth quarter with their tenure with us, they're starting to slip a little bit. But we're starting to see a little, bit, a little contraction or maybe some outright churn, that kind of thing. So I like to slice it by industry and by relative quarter. And then sort of obviously over time as well. So, you know, if, you, if you're selling annual deals, then you might see some more churn at the end of initial terms and things like that. So there's some sort of logical things that you might see sort of inflection points in your customer base. But to be able to slice them by multiple, either by timeframes or multiple attributes is key. And it's so hard to do in a spreadsheet. So it's one of the reasons that we are always kind of key in on that is because, you know, if you can at least get some easy segmentation by making an easy choice, let's chop the data like up like this. There may be nothing there, but let's at least take a look at it, right? So that's the kind of the approach we like to take there. Yeah. You just added that time-based dimension. And I think it's something that so many SaaS companies miss. And part of it is because it's very complex to slice and dice all these different cohorts. But you may be looking at, especially if you're usage-based pricing, when do the usage trend lines grow over time? And when does that really kick into higher net dollar retention? Or if you're looking at churn, to your point, maybe you see churn rates higher after eight quarters or two years. So you start planning two quarters ahead of time, kind of in that fifth or sixth quarter to have more customer success outreach, more tender loving care, more training and engagement. So you reduce that churn. Is that kind of things you're talking about, Clayton? Spot on, 100%. That's exactly right. We used to, I don't know if I, we haven't probably thrown this term around a lot lately, but we used to call it lifecycle renewal curves. Because one of the things you see, especially a lot with businesses that sell annual subscriptions is after term one, you maybe have a little dip or maybe even a bigger dip in churn, right? But then after term two, the ones that stuck around with you for term two, they're maybe pretty sticky by now. So terms two and three have a sort of a lower sort of churn rate at that point, right? So terms two, three, and four, maybe by the time they've been with you for three or four years, they're likely very happy with what they get out of your product and they're likely getting a lot of value. So those are those are kinds of things that are nice to identify from a retention perspective. So if over time we see we need extra TLC at the end of term one, then let's get on it. Let's not be reactive. Let's be proactive here and start maybe even nine months into their first term. If we know we have a dip usually after term one, after the 12-month mark, let's start with nine months. I'm obviously making these examples up, but there's so much insight to be teased out of those kinds of things. And, and the, the cohort reporting makes that so much easier to do. Slice it by time, slice it by whatever attribute you think is meaningful and go after it like that. It's another thing too that I love about cohort reports as well is it can be such a nice resource allocation report, not just let's focus our customer success efforts here. It also can be this particular industry that is a struggle for us from a churn perspective. So maybe we need to you know, focus more time on customer, maybe allocate more dollars to hold on to them for longer, or 
maybe it's we're not doing so well in this cohort over here from a customer acquisition perspective. So maybe we need to reallocate those dollars to a or industry or vertical where we are doing better and that kind of stuff, where we find have shorter sales cycles and more obvious value for the customers and things like that. So there's just so much insight to be able to tease out of that. What we see over time is when people come to us using a bunch of manual tools, sometimes they don't even get started doing the analysis because the original take, the original stab at getting the segmentation done is so hard or so time consuming. So then they don't ever even make it to the analysis. So they just kind of say, you know, I kind of understand my customer base anyway. Intuitively, they're probably right, but it's always, always good to see the data, let the data speak for itself. So when you can kind of get the segmentation out of the way quickly, the analysis comes much more easily. And once you've done it for one segment, it's much easier to do it for others as you go. Yeah, I think you made such an interesting and a point that I really haven't heard many people talk about, and that is life cycle renewal curves and when to allocate the right amount of resource. In that case, it's probably more customer success resource because in today's SaaS world, customer success cost has went up to 12 to 14% of revenue, where five years ago it was 2 to 3%. Right. And we still see the number of accounts that a customer success person is responsible for can continue to increase. And there's no way they can give every customer the same amount of focus and time. And being able to do that on that life cycle renewal curve analysis seems really smart. I love that one. Thank you for adding that, Clayton. Absolutely. Let me ask a new question. Sure. And that is metrics. This is the metrics that measure up podcasts. A lot of the SaaS metrics we hear about all the time, the ones I mentioned earlier, you know, the CAC ratio, gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, they often are referred to as lagging indicators. By the time you have those metrics calculated, it's hard to course correct quickly. Are there leading indicators that go into those kind of traditional metrics that you recommend tracking for a SaaS company? Well, it's, it's kind of always that, you know, the holy grail is is usage data from your product plus, you know, some financial, potentially some lagging, some like you're talking about, some lagging indicators, some sort of backward looking stuff there. I would say that it's kind of hard to see a financial metric that is a leading indicator there. So Rule of 40, things like that, some of the things that you threw out there, they tend to be by their nature sort of backward looking, especially when they're tied to like they are in our product. Our metrics are derived directly from your contract elements, right? So if nothing's changed in the contract, then something has to exist in a contract for us to be able to derive those metrics. So they're sort of by definition, those financial bits are kind of backward looking like that. Whereas if you can combine it with usage data, some data that's being fed from your project or something like that, as an example, one of the things we try to look out for is usage with this customer is kind of tailing off. They're spending less time on the site, less time in the product. You know, there are fewer page clicks, things like that. What's going on there? You know, is that a sort of a yellow flag for us or is it a stone cold red flag? Let's get it on it as quickly as possible. And especially if it happens to coincide with some of the things you're talking about there from the lifecycle renewal curves, it's okay, yeah, we're at the 12 month mark. There, maybe we've got some stuff going on here. Maybe there's some staff turnover, things like that. There, there are any number of risks in a B2B customer base. You know, staff turnover is one of them that your, your product champion, the person that understood your product, just took off and found another job somewhere. So, is there something like that going on? So, let's get on that and see if we can head those kinds of things off. Those are important to do. If you can help pinpoint those at what you know are the hot spots from a time perspective, like lifecycle renewal stuff we mentioned then that helps. But as far as a, you know, leading versus lagging, I think for me, the holy grail is mushing up the usage data and the financials there. Yeah, it was interesting. We um, spend a lot of time with clients around key performance indicators and SaaS metrics. And we find everyone's pretty consistent at the executive table, kind of at the top. Hey, we're focused on committed ARR growth. We're focused on gross dollar retention, 
Maybe it's gross margin to generate more free cash flow. But then it's that next level. I call them the operating metrics and operating KPIs. Mm -hmm. Often they become more vanity metrics that don't have a direct causal impact on those company level. So we actually recommend, let's say you're looking at CAC ratio. If you're looking at CAC ratio, which measures you know how many dollars of sales and marketing expenses are required to generate $1 of new ARR, Let's look at what are the metrics in sales that directly impact that. And maybe that's close rate, maybe that's ACV, and maybe that's sell cycle time. But pick two to three leading indicators that you can measure and then identify how to improve those. And you'll automatically see your CAC ratio improve, your CAC payback period improve. But you also mentioned product data. And one of the things that we're not seeing a lot of companies doing today in the B2B world is looking at things like monthly average users, daily active users, other engagement metrics, and then correlate that to gross dollar retention or churn rates. Are you seeing many companies kind of look at those type of correlations, even NPS to churn, Clayton? Yeah, we, we know they do. We don't, we're not always deeply involved in those conversations, but yes, that is certainly something that has, to our earlier part of the conversation about evolved, that is certainly something that seems to have improved over time. Again, there's always an improvement to be made, but yeah, that's, a, that's another one where to your point, NPS or, or even usage stats that, you know, that, or daily average stats, things like that, that can be correlated or it can, you can at least attempt to correlate to some of the financial metrics. Then, yeah, we see a little bit of improvement there and we see it on occasion, but again, we don't, you know, we're not always very deeply involved in those particular conversations. How about with you as chief customer officer? Do you measure NPS net promoter score? We do. We, that's something we, we've relied on over the years and we, we've had various tools to kind of deploy those things to our users over the years. So yes, we do. There's a lot to be learned there. And especially, you know, one of the things that we don't get everything right at SaaS Optics, right? But uh, one of the things we've gotten pretty right over the years is staying pretty tight with our customers and with our customer contact and things like that. So one of the things that we've always been very, very happy about is our NPS scores tend to be pretty high and, and a reliable source of, of what we were talking about earlier is like, can we draw some circles around some things that we maybe need to pay attention to? And let's get into them and see what's what. Totally agree. And one of the things we often see companies who are just starting on their customer sat NPS journey is they'll do NPS and they don't segment that by cohort because you will get different net promoter score results from your executive or economic buyers than you will from your user buyers. That's absolutely correct. Are there any other things like that on customer sat? Any tips or tricks you'd give to early stage SaaS founders out there? One thing that we would see is, you know, and that we've talked about before with prospects and customers is, you know, there, there are any number of reasons that your customers might be struggling with, you know, upgrades, downgrades, churn, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I think companies often ignore is their own evolutions as a business and what, how that might be affecting their customers. So as an example that we've run into multiple times over the years is, you know, in the early days, we were really, really struggling to get our implementations kind of working and everything like that. So the customers that we signed up in, I'm making this up. Customers that we signed up in 2010 to 2011, those customers tend to struggle more than the ones we got that we signed up after 2011 when they were really, really cooking, really had a good, good buttoned up implementation process. That's obviously a very contrived example, but it's one we run into all the time. And it, but it's easy to ignore. It's easy to assume that your customers have had a fairly consistent experience for the entire time that you've been in business, but usually it's almost never true. You know, your business has evolved just as theirs does. And depending on where they might've signed up with you, they might have had a really good experience and stick with you forever, or they might not have. Depends on you know how many kinks you were working out at the time. So that's the one thing that I would say that companies should always, always, always drill in on if they're trying to identify operational 
insights and takeaways, things that they can do something about, you know, that's a big one. You can at least start to identify, here's where they signed up. Here's where we had a rash of people that didn't have a great experience for one reason or another. Was that? And was that our evolution? Was it something we tried from a sales perspective? Was there any number of levers we might have been pulling at the time? But which one was it? And let's see if you know part of it was just our evolution as a business. Another reason, kind of going back to what you recommended earlier, which was that cohort-based analysis. If you know that in 2015 through 16, your customer onboarding wasn't the best, go look at their both product utilization and look at their NPS and look at their churn rate or gross dollar retention. And I might provide you some real interesting insight that maybe I should prioritize on my resources on that cohort of customers versus the ones that I signed up in 2019 where we had customer onboarding all figured out, right? Exactly right. And one other thing I'd add to that too is go look at the features that that particular cohort uses because you know we're all busy, right? Everybody's busy and, and B2B SaaS customers are particularly busy. So especially as they're still evolving and growing and things like that. So they'll, you know, most everybody is kind of guilty of, I figured out how to do the three or four things that I need to do in this product to get my job done. And that's really kind of it. I'm going to stick with the things I know in this product and not really branch out. So if that particular cohort that you mentioned is using these three or four features, it might be time to get some extra customer success love with them so they can expand the usage of the particular features in the product that they may really just not even know about because they never went exploring. Yeah, got it. Hey, a couple more questions. And unfortunately, our time's already coming close. But one of the questions is, and you've been through this journey yourself as a founder and operating executive at SaaS Optics, but you have hundreds and hundreds of customers who went through this journey. Are there specific metrics that a B2B SaaS customer should look at as a series A kind of early stage? Maybe that's a million to 5 million of ARR versus a series B, maybe that's 5 million to 20 million and then a series C and above 20 million or greater, are there different metrics to become more important across that journey for a SaaS company? That's a tough one for me because I tend to think customer lifetime value, except for the very, very earliest days of your business, I tend to think customer lifetime value and customer acquisition costs show up so big there for two reasons. One is, of course, the segmentation is always important. We already talked about that. But one is, you know, to get CLV right, you have to get other things right too, like your churn and all those things too. They're embedded in that calculation. So those things kind of show up pretty strongly, I think, at every one of those milestones. The other thing too, I would say, you know, series A is, I'm probably going to oversimplify this, but series A is very much about, you know, what's the potential here? So investors come into your business, they're like, what's the potential here? Do we like the team? Do we like the founders? Do we like the market? You know, do we see some pipeline metrics here that might lead to some future growth and all that kind of thing and a future sort of return for the VCs and, and their potential and their investors and so on, right? Do we have some faith that these guys can grow? CLV in my mind is important there, but pipeline metrics, I think, tend to loom a little bit larger there. By the time you get to series C, it's all about the numbers at that point. If somebody's going to dump a giant series C round into your business, then it's all about the numbers and very much about what you plan to do to get there. So, you know, resource allocation, things like CLV to CAC tend to loom pretty large there because, you know, what's the plan for this? About to put a whole bunch of money in your business, what's the plan for it? And how does that equal? a big financial return for me and my investors kind of thing, if I'm a venture capitalist in that scenario. Yeah, you said another thing that kind of triggered a thought, and that was just customer lifetime value, CLV or CLTV. Mm -hmm. I've had early stage companies, maybe they're 500,000 to a million ARR. They've been around for a year and a half to two years. And have investors asking, well, what's your customer lifetime value and customer lifetime value to CAC ratio? And it's like, whoa, well, wait a minute you've had maybe not even one full renewal cycle, right? right? And right. that means your 
customer lifetime value because it factors in churn could be infinity because you've had no churn yet. So <laughs> exactly. That's it's it, yeah. very, very important to be time relevant and also context relevant for any metric, I believe. 100% correct. And that's one, I'm glad you pointed that. One of the things that we, we always counsel, especially our earlier stage customers to do is, especially in those very early days, even if you're getting pushed by an investor like, like your example, is to rely more on subscription momentum reports there. So ARR and MRR momentum versus, versus CLV, because you, like you said, maybe you haven't even had a full renewal cycle yet. So you just don't have enough renewal history for those things to be reliable. So pointing to a metric and boy, talk about a vanity metric. Here's an infinity customer lifetime value, right? It doesn't, to your point, doesn't really mean much. And you haven't had, you haven't been around long enough for there to be a renewal history that makes that meaningful. So yeah, in those early days, uh, momentum, I think tends to swing much bigger than CLV. I'm totally agreed. So last question, you talked a little bit about companies are getting a little bit better at understanding metrics, but we always know there's inconsistent calculations of those metrics. Are there one or two B2B SaaS metrics that you see calculated more consistently incorrectly than others? Yeah, CAC is, is easy to pick on, but that's because it's kind of accounting project right by itself. A lot of people want to treat it just like, let me just go and take my sales and marketing expense and dump it all in here per month. And then there's my CAC. But it's typically far, far, far more nuanced than that. And that's a dangerous approach to take because you're almost, it's a pretty safe bet. You're including things that shouldn't be and probably also not including things that should be. If you just sort of blindly grab all my sales and marketing spend and dump it in and here's my CAC. So that one is very easy to pick on because you want to be a bit much more nuanced than that. The example we've run into multiple times over the years is I went to a, you know, I'm making this up. I went to a, a trade show in January and spent half a million dollars on that trade show all in January. My entire expend was on the thing was in January. Half a million dollars went out the door, but those customers might not show up for six or eight months or even a year. So dumping a half million dollars of spend into January may make no sense, especially if you acquired no customers yet as a result of that. What you might want to do in that case is amortize those costs over 12 months or whatever you think is reasonable for the time window that you expect to maybe derive some customers out of that spend. So it's a much, much more nuanced thing than most people really think. And it requires some time and some thoughts and management judgment, similar to you know when public companies report their results as MDNA section of the, of the reports. That's basically management judgment. We need to apply that to customer acquisition costs too. And again, as anyone who's stuck with us so far can tell that there's segmentation to be done there too, right? Segment your customer acquisition costs by some parameters that make sense as well. So it's not just grab the sales and marketing and treat it all as one CAC. It's also maybe this segment of my customers has a totally different CAC than this segment. And for that reason, they may have better or worse CLV to CAC ratios, but those are things worth paying attention to. So I see those get sort of abused and misused a lot. Yeah, we're totally aligned on that. Customer acquisition cost efficiency metric, and we prefer the CAC ratio, customer acquisition cost ratio. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we think is really important as a company evolves from series B and above, where you have some existing customer upsells and cross sales, mm -hmm. is measuring the efficiency of every net new customer logo as your new name customer acquisition cost ratio. And then also look at the efficiency of growing each existing dollar. And that means there's going to be some expense allocation of marketing sales and even customer success between what is being allocated to net new customer acquisition versus what is being allocated to existing customer growth. Would you agree with that one? 
hundred percent. Thank you. It's a great point. And that's another one we see kind of get painted with too broad a brush too, is, you know, the guiding principle for net new should be, if it's not a dollar that was spent on acquiring a new customer, don't include it. But if you're measuring, like you point out, if you're measuring expansion dollars or even contraction dollars for that matter, you know, adding the cost for that, keeping those separate from net new is important. So the, in effect, you've got, I like the way you're doing that. In effect, you've got two different CACs there. One is for net new and one is for your expansion or your customer success efforts there. And those are important not to blend together and, and muddy the waters. It's so much harder to see in, operation insight out of your business when you're mushing your metrics together like that. Yeah, and we could do a whole other podcast on, well, how do I allocate how much of my marketing expense wants to new versus growth right. or how much of my sales expense? But we'll leave that for another day. Hey, Clayton, right. unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to give the listening audience a chance to get to know Clayton, the person, a little bit better through three quick questions. And the first is, now, is there a CEO or a company that you think everyone must be following in 2021? Yeah, there's a guy named Rob Hohen. He's the CEO of a company called IdeaScale. Rob is whip smart and endlessly energetic. And his product and his business is all about cultivating and managing innovation within your enterprise. I'm sure that's probably overly generic for everything they get up to, but there's everything to learn from a guy like Rob. He's, he's really good at what he does and watching him, you can't go wrong. Okay, I'm going to click that one up to someone who didn't say Elon Musk. (laughs) So a second question is, is there a tool, not your own, that every SaaS company should be using? Well, this is, again, my bias for bias alert for everybody who's listening still. Yeah, well, SaaSops has always been a very, very much a product-led company, product-first company. So one of the things that we rely on heavily is a product called Pendo for those, some of those product insights that I mentioned earlier. And Prendo does other things other than just sort of giving you usage stats and things like that. But one of the things that they do so very well, they give you a platform to help foster product adoption. So if, you, if you're a product first company like we are, you know the way your customers use and adopt and expand their usage of over time is hugely meaningful thing to keep an eye on. And it's what we use Pendo for. And I, I recommend it to anybody that, that thinks of themselves as a product first company. I'll tell you, any product-led growth-oriented company better have that product analytics infrastructure solidly in place. Totally agree with that one, Clayton. And my last question, what advice would you give to someone who's just ready to graduate from university, or maybe they've been out of university for six to 12 months, and they're trying to figure out what industry they want to be in? They've heard a lot of great things about SaaS and the cloud industry. What advice would you give that early career professional? If you want to get into SaaS, again, bias alert, because we're all about the product of SaaS optics. But most SaaS companies are. That's what they're selling, right? You know, most SaaS companies aren't selling tables or hammers like Home Depot is, right? They're selling software. So most SaaS companies are all about the product. And if you want a career in SaaS, my opinion is you cannot go wrong with getting yourself some product management training. And then to be clear, you know, as far as I know, there aren't any or there are certainly not many universities that have anything like a product management degree or program or anything like that. But so you'd probably have to find something online, you know, sort of post-graduation. But I'd recommend anything you can do to, to enhance your product management skills because no matter where you end up in the SaaS world, it'll help. So think of it like this. If you've learned some product management skills and you end up in sales, understanding the way products get built and get delivered will help you communicate the value, sell the value to your prospects there. Same with marketing. If you end up in marketing, you know, understanding some product management skills will help you communicate the value to your potential customers, but just by virtue of understanding having some product management skills. And then, of course, if you end up in customer success, product management skills will help you make sure that the value of your product accrues to your customers. It's just so much easier to communicate about your product and the way people can derive value from it if you understand some of the thinking that goes into product management. So that's, that'd be my number one bit of advice. Get yourself some product management skills. And if you want to be a product manager, then definitely double down on that. 
I'll tell you, Clayton, it's interesting. That's a very common trend. The last three guests I've had, they've all said product management would be a great place to start a career. So awesome. dead on. Hey, Clayton, thank you so much for being a guest on today's Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Sincerely appreciate it. Likewise, Ray. Thanks so much for the time and all the best. Well, that's a wrap to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests and topics that we're covering, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite channel and go ahead and give us the rating and provide your comments so we can make the quality of the guest and the content that we're providing you even more relevant to our listening audience. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.